0: And Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
1: This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm a wet Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome to our show the Mayor of Holyoke. Back to our show, the Mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia, because if it's Monday, it's Mayor's Monday here on WHMP and Talk the Talk. Mayor Garcia, thank you so much for being with us. I'd like to start by asking you about ARPA funding. We have spoken on the f- show before about the funding for the th- yes. for the Victory Theater. Um, my understanding is that there was no ARPA funding for Gateway City Arts, which is a very popular destination, uh, for, particularly for people here in the Northern Valley, a reason that we frequent Holyoke and Gateway City Arts did not receive any GARPA funding, and it appears that Gateway City Arts may be on its way out. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about that and could share your, your perspective yeah. on Gateway City Arts.
2: It, it, our friends over at the Gateway City Arts have been arguing or saying they're on their way out even before COVID, so I don't know how much I, I buy that. But nevertheless, uh, and Gateway City Arts did get ARPA money. And so the city of Holyoke was allocated in total about 30 million plus dollars. In the first round, which was done by Mayor Murphy, no small businesses got direct allocation funding through applying for that first initial apply for ARPA round. Instead, what they did was they took $800,000 of that total and dedicated to small business programs, which uh, Gateway City Arts did apply and they got some of that money. Um, This round, we followed the same suit. We took, we carved out $800,000. Again, no private small businesses got any ARPA money in this next round. Uh, We carved $800,000 out and uh, they can, uh, you know, go after that. Although I gotta say, this particular round for small business support program is focused on um, meeting codes. Uh, When we were doing renewal licenses, We found that a lot of businesses, particularly those that um, needed alcohol renewal licenses, weren't necessarily um, uh, on the up and up with their uh, inspections. And so we understand that small businesses, it can cost a lot to put a sprinkler system, for example. And so we're we're looking at things like that to, to try to support those that are really struggling to make ends meet. As far as the Victory Theater is concerned, it's not a small, business for profit organization. It's a nonprofit that's been trying to get off the ground for some time. Gateway City Arts got off the ground. They're operating, Um, uh, you know, so I think think there's a little bit of misguided uh, information put out there as far as the city's intent and how we allocated ARPA, Um, but that's okay. Um, we, We take the punches, be it may. I take full responsibility. And I'll just continue working from the bottom up in support of the what the community desires when it comes to how we allocate these funds.
1: Do you recall, uh, Mayor, how much money Gateway City Arts received in ARPA funding altogether?
2: So through the small business program, um, they were giving no more than twenty-five thousand. They they received about fifteen thousand, and that's on top of the tax incentives. Um, they had a five-year um, tax break, um, and other funding sources. They were able to leverage community development block grants to support their businesses to get off the ground. Um, uh, you know, we all love Gateway City Arts. Um, I don't think that their operational model needs to depend on, um, that heavily on, on grant resources to stay alive.
3: It's Dan. I have a question for you, Mayor.
4: How does the city of Holyoke determine who gets arpa funding is there a committee that sets it up are you involved in that? how does yep. that work
2: yeah so we have one two three four five different phases there's a community advisory committee there's a um, also the office of community development the team there then we have dgnr the development governmental relations committee of the city council then there's the full city council and then i make my final um decision because the the final decision does rest with the mayor um, but instead here we follow a system that allows for a great deal of community input and even even before going through that process you know we've had you know a ton of different community surveys um, uh, community meetings i had advisory groups that met and kind of uh, went over these things Um, so there was a lot of Uh, discussions in the community and try to understand and prioritize what the um, community needs are and how we commit these ARPA dollars. And once we got to the um, allocation part, these different groups I just described met, had their public meetings, went over the requests and made their recommendations. Um, I have a link here I can forward to you and it's all on the website. There's it's not like in Springfield where businesses got uh, dollars here, dollars there, depending on who you knew Uh, here. We 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 were really trying to be as strategic as possible. The issue is, and this is no one's no one that received ARPA money, no municipalities problem, but. There's limited resources and you know, I find it unfair that we have to sprinkle these things around and make people fight for limited dollars. You know, we wish we had more. We had $60 million worth of requests. 19 and only had 19 million dollars to dish out. So that's how competitive it was. So we try to be as thoughtful as possible, um, uh, uh, as strategic as possible. We, we engaged where we needed to so that it wasn't just the mayor's decision. It was community decisions on how we spread this money out.
1: One last question, if I might, Mayor, on Gateway City Arts. Uh, assuming that the information that has been distributed recently is accurate and i do actually um at gateway city arts is really going to be closing up is will it be missed will it be a significant hit for holyoke uh, so what's your view on that
2: it would it would definitely be missed significant hit i don't know that's tough to say i mean you know the, the gateway city arts when they are open is great they're not always open um and you know if they can't make it happen hopefully whoever they sell to is able to um, uh, diversify and be as creative as possible in how they leverage um um, how they create programming and leverage revenue opportunity to sustain it the operations there it's a great venue they have two different uh halls um hall settings you know if if you've ever been to gateway city arts there's that large Space where they do concerts, right. and then there's another smaller space where you can do you know, weddings, baby showers, uh, birthday parties. I could tell you halls um, in in Holyoke that are booked up all the way to October. Um, I, I just don't know how how they manage it down there. But you know, I, I, you know that's that's their prerogative, and hopefully, if they do decide to sell, hopefully not. Hopefully, they can make it happen because it is their pride and joy, and and they work so hard to build that to where it is today. Um, uh, But if they can't, hopefully it'll go into capable hands.
1: Uh, Let's turn to another topic, if we might, Mayor, I'd like to know about another project that is very important to Holyoke, and that's the middle school, the new middle school that will be built, finally, I think. Finally. Tell us about that.
2: I took a deep breath there because
1: uh, want you not you take another breath that was real <laughs> that was really impressive radio really that it's was that was been a such big a sigh
2: long time coming <laughs> in this community I want to say 10 years this has been a 10 year community debate um, and I'm happy to report that uh, unanimously supported through the city council um, you know we finally get, came came to a conclusion that the the community can that's much more palatable and and can strongly support. Uh, I think, you know, through our experiences here, I learned that it wasn't that this community didn't want to build a middle school at all the last 10 years. It's, you know, the community was divided and on the path to get there. Um,
1: Well, let me me interrupt mayor if I might, because as I recall, there was a vote and the city voted against having new schools twice. Am I wrong about that or am I right about that?
2: Nope, you're absolutely right. And so that that last vote, it was for two new middle schools and uh, the costs we had to do a vote override. So that meant we couldn't sustain it with our own on our own budget. We had to do an override vote to um, significantly raise the taxes so that we could support this middle school. And that's what the city turned down. It wasn't that we didn't want to build schools. It was they didn't support the funding model. It would have hurt a lot of people who. Um, uh, who are struggling right now to make ends meet, um, so. What we did was we went back to the drawing table. We regrouped and the goal was build what we need. Um, at the most feasible option, and so the school building committee did exactly that. Um, We met about two times a month since I first came into office, sometimes three times a month. Um, uh, we got ourselves an OPM um what's that really uh owner's project manager um an owner's project manager anything over a million dollars um you have to through massachusetts law hire an opm and they're the, the the team that that knows you know the construction field and knows how to break down the dollars and cents and and try to uh manage your project to be sure that they're meeting the city's needs and not breaking laws at the same time. Um, but they, you know, they came in and we met with them regularly and try to understand and we pivoted in areas where we had to build what we need at the most feasible option. And so finally we were able to come forward with a, a, a model that achieved those specific objectives um, within our budget where we don't have to go out and ask for or override and raise taxes.
1: Who pay, who's paying for most of this at the end of the day, the state or the city?
2: Yep. So it's about a 80 80, $80 million dollar project, the major well 85 million dollar project. The majority of that the state is covering. The city is going to be covering 40 million.
1: When does construction start?
2: So this fall they're going to start demolition. Um it's it's a pretty aggressive schedule. We're looking for this thing to be done by fiscal year 25. I believe.
1: Is that a change in the uh, uh, city's, city's approach? Um, I know you've just explained about the uh, need for an override, which uh, was not approved. Um, uh, but it seems to me the city's putting in a very significant amount of money, which also seems to me to be a change.
2: A change in, in change
1: how in, we. In, <clears throat> in the city's approach, um, in saying, yes, we're going to put a lot of money into a new middle, new middle school.
2: Well, no, I think, well, the, the change was, uh, my model is you get what you plan for, and a, a lot of projects die when there's not a great deal of due diligence that takes place to get to that end result where you get your stakeholders to buy into it. Um, and so, you know, here we brought forward a product that That really took seriously the community wide concerns we have learned throughout the years. Um, And we also put together a financing um, forecast model. And presented it to the Council to show the community how we intend to pay for it. Now, don't get me wrong. We we, you know, between now and the next 20 years, we have to be very vigilant in how we prioritize our limited, uh, resources, our appropriations, to be sure that we're keeping up with our obligations. And so, you know, we put a plan together um, that made sense, that ultimately resulted in the unanimous support of the city council, which is unheard of in the city of Holyoke.
1: Yeah, completely um, unheard of. I was wanting to ask, <laughs> did you really say <laughs> unanimous? Yeah, you know, I thought it, you said unanimous. <laughs> it's
2: it's unheard of here in the, in the city, but, you know, again, we we did a lot of due diligence uh, behind the scenes, to be sure that we were taking very seriously the concerns of this community, who are ultimately the people they represent, the people that voted them in, um, and the people that voted me in. And so, you know, that process that we laid out from the time I got in to the time it got voted on was very bottom up, middle out um, uh, uh, kind of a process that got us to where we are today. So, That's why I took my deep breath earlier (laughs) because it was a lot of work, a lot of hours, and I'm just happy to see that, um, uh, you know, we're able to, um, you know, get to where we are today because of that process.
1: It's Mayor's Monday on WHMP, and we are speaking with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. After this break, I want to talk to the mayor about this mural project that's going on in his city. I want you to know about this Woodstock-type event that's going to happen, and then we're going to talk about something very serious, the opioid crisis in western Massachusetts and how that's affecting his city. We'll be right back.
0: talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg coming up right here on whmp the western mass business show with local dynamo tara brewster saturdays at 11 and sundays at two only on whmp
5: brought to you by business west the vital business news in western mass is in business west
0: the western mass business show with tara brewster whmp
6: Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, The Money Doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money, financial coaching coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit hugyourmoney.com what's cooking at river valley co-op here's avid eater grocery shopper and co-op member bill newman
1: ah summer in new england and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries basil and tomatoes an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables in the co-op meat department local chicken from reed farm house-made brats sausage lots of grilling ideas and in the co-op cheese department get fresh mozzarella for your caprese
0: salad
7: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: On this Mayor's Monday, we continue our conversation with the Mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. It is as Buzz pointed out at the very beginning of the this hour, it's raining. It's really raining. Cats and dogs. I never understood that <laughs> phrase, but it's raining a lot out there and it is affecting many roads and many many communities. How it's how is it affecting Holyoke, Mayor?
2: Rain is good. Good things come out of rain. We got to look at the positive side.
1: <laughs> okay. We're all we're all in favor of growing things with rain. What what's the downside?
2: Well, it's 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 not impacting us like what we see in Hilltown communities I hear stories. And I remember when I was town administrator at Blandford and we had downpours, roads, washing out dirt roads and people, you know, we don't have those issues here, but the one issue we do have is the uh, overflow into the Connecticut river issue every time it rains. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, this problem, but
1: we're talking about raw uh, sewer- sewage, we're talking about raw sewage going into the Connecticut.
2: Yeah. Pretty much so. You know, when it rains our source our system collects that um, stormwater runoff and 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 treats it. Um, but when we have downpours like we had the other day or what we're experiencing now all week, um, the system gets compromised and the way that it's designed is that when it when it gets compromised like that, untreated water and and essentially waste overflows into the system, into the River, Connecticut River. The City of Holyoke is on what they call a long term control plan, a consent decree with the federal government. For quite a while, um. Chicopee, Springfield, many towns that have this kind of a system um, where untreated uh, water is going into the river and then making its way to to our nation's oceans. Um? You know, in that long term control plan. We have uh, strategies at play to to. Do incremental investments to to improve the system so that we no longer have that problem going on. But you're talking about you know, when I say long term control plan 20 years before um, we can. So every time there's a rain like that, we have to legally notify the public um, and let them know that hey, you know. Untreated water is making its way into the river. Uh, please be advised before you go fish or swim in the water.
4: And my understanding, Mayor, is that Agawam, West Springfield, and Springfield—the problem is becoming acute. We've had so much water rain this season; it's uh, it's really becoming
2: an acute problem. It's not a it's not a, a a good problem to have. I mean, it's it impacts the environment. We all sh- share this river, and whatever flows in there travels its way all the way to the ocean um and so many uh people that recreate on the river and um the wildlife and and uh, um that you know access that river it's it's uh it's definitely a problem which is every reason why the federal government has this initiative where they're working with cities and towns to try to upgrade their system so this problem no longer happens the problem for communities like holyoke though is that it's extremely expensive um, other municipalities might be able to afford that. But in, in Holyoke, you know, uh, it's a different kind of situation here and a conversation we've been having with our delegation about how we can get some federal help to subsidize these costs because it's going to really hurt um, the user rates and the ratepayers uh, when they have to pay the bill.
1: Did I hear you correctly, Mayor, that you said it's going to take up to another 20 years to fix this?
2: It's a it's a so that's why they call it the long term control plan. It's like, you know, in this consent decree, it's an agreement between the municipality and the federal government that says, yep, we we, we understand. Um, we need to do this. Uh, we also understand that it's not feasible to complete this next year, um, and so here's a so they break it down into phases um, so that you know, just to give you phase one is $10,500,000 just for phase one. Um, and then we have a phase 2A and a phase 2B, um, which is going to be implemented throughout the, the the decade or so.
1: Let me turn to some other uh, uh, infrastructure issues. Uh, and on a more positive note, I think um, there's a mural project going on in Holyoke. I don't think most of our listeners know about it. So tell us if you would, please. Yeah, yeah more positive. I like to talk about it all, good or bad. Let's just get it out there. <laughs>
2: Uh, mural project. Yeah, I've, I've had enough. I,
1: I was just imagining what it was like to be a fish in the Connecticut today. It was. It was. It was not a pretty thought.
2: <laughs> let's, go, let's go.
1: Let's go to murals. Too.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. So this is the we we beyond walls. Uh, these group of artists, professionals that get invited to the city and and they contract with private property owners to put these magnificent murals that are just uh, for the you know to. The title of their their organization beyond walls that are just beyond the walls that they're drawn on. Um, this is our second year inviting these artists from around the world into the city Um, and they're really creating quite the buzz out there. There's a lot of chatter. um, uh, Folks gathering to observe them. Paint these murals um, from the day, even in the middle of the night. Um, and peop- and when they're done, people from all over the place coming into the city to tour these murals. And then you got folks that have interpretation of the murals and, you know, whether good or bad, it's starting a conversation. It's um, uh, creating dialogue. Um, it's uh, it's a, a, you know, just, I'm just thrilled to be able to, you know, have them here in our city and, and engage to the level that they have been. And this is where?
1: In the city, Mayor?
2: Throughout the downtown area. So <clears throat> um, in South Holyoke, um, you got a couple along Main Street. You got a couple that are new now on Maple Street. So there's about, this year they did about 20 new murals. Um, last year, I think it was about 10 or 12 murals. So it, it's adding to um, uh, you know our mural portfolio for the lack of better terms, uh, into our city.
1: Which you see in some ways as a tourist attraction or simply something to enhance uh, art and public art in the city or both?
0: A combination
2: of all of that. I mean, I'm pretty um, engaged on my different social media platforms and news feeds and just watching the different um, uh, people that I'm connected with posts on their visit to a mural um. There's been already a multitude of um, mural tours, where large groups have been gathering and just visiting each one and sharing their experiences on social media. Um, uh, it's it's. It, you know, I've never seen that before um, here in the city. I grew up, born and raised in the city, lived in downtown for a very long time, and it's refreshing to see. People wanting to actively come into the city and observe a mural um, and, you know, the secondary impact that offers to the local businesses and
1: establishments.
2: Um, So it's it's um, you know, I'm I'm humbled by it.
1: Uh, Mayor Garcia, in terms of people coming to Holyoke, there is a festival that will it will stop raining sometime and there is going to be a festival in Holyoke. <laughs> Describe Rain or me, shine? Describe to me as a Woodstock-type Woodstock festival. I don't think most listeners know about it yet, so enlighten us, if yeah. you would, please.
2: Oh, remember, we talked about this last year when the Fiesta Patronales happened last August. Um, it was very successful. Thousands of people came. I, I know people often... You know, talk about celebrate Holyoke. Um, this is celebrate Holyoke 2.0. Um, it's much bigger um, and and much more uh, interactive. And um, this year they're doing it again. Um, they bring um, uh, high, you know, uh, uh, I forget the name of the phrase, high-level artists um, to come and perform and. Uh, this is a very popular. Um, when I say Fiesta Patronales, every town in Puerto Rico has their own Fiesta Patronales, um, where the, the local community just comes together and celebrates their city, the municipality, the culture, the contributions similar to Saint Patrick's. Um, uh, you know, it has this, kind of that same. Um, you know, practice. More or less so. You know, vendors, music, art, um, you name it, it'll be downtown, right in the Heritage Park, right, uh, right on Dwight Street.
1: So the Fiesta Patronalis, this is in August for four days, am I, is that right?
2: Yep, four oh. days. Uh, the first day is, is dedicated to uh, the faith community. So Fiesta is very similar to St. Patrick's, is um, when you celebrate a saint uh, the Saint here, in the City of Holyoke for this group is uh, Guadalupe. Just like St. Patrick's, the Saint is St. Patrick's. And if you uh, follow the festivities of the St. Patrick's um, events in March, there are elements where um, they, they and, and, you know, a lot of people just know road race and parade. This The St. Patrick's committee does much more than just road race and parade during that month. And there's a, there is a faith element that they loop into it. Um, The Fiesta Patronales Committee dedicated um, the first Thursday to the faith community where it's going to be mostly Christian bands um, and and there's a really famous Christian artist that's that's going to be joining that day. And I think a week before that there's a service at Saint Jerome Catholic Church um, where they're going to go and and, um, you know, uh, practice the faith. Uh, then you got Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, where it's just, you know, you got other artists, very popular artists coming in to perform um, and, you know, family friendly events. Uh, we're hoping uh, for another good
1: year. And this is when in August, Mayor?
2: August 3rd, 4, 5, and 6.
1: Well, we have to run, Mayor. We really appreciate your time every month. Next month, I have a very serious topic I wanted to discuss with you, which is the opioid crisis here in Western Massachusetts. I want to know what the efforts are that Holyoke is making. They're substantial. We'll pick this up again next month. Mayor Joshua Garcia, thank you for being with us on this Mayor's Monday. Thank you for having me.
0: listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Commonwealth is pursuing plans to build a new $50 million women's prison to replace the one in Framingham, but activists are fiercely opposing the plans. In response, State Senator Joe Comerford introduced a bill that would place a moratorium on the construction or expansion of prisons and jails in Massachusetts. Comerford is advocating for increased access to education, job training and medical care within prisons to break harmful cycles that leave people worse off when they get out of prison than when they were arrested. I am not alone in believing that there is no such thing as trauma-informed prisons and jails. No such thing. Incarceration is inherently traumatic. The prison moratorium bill would still allow for repairs to existing buildings so current buildings could still be maintained and improved, just not expanded. Northampton City Council is considering a new building code that will discourage the use of fossil fuels. The City Council advanced the proposed order last month to the Committee on Legislative Matters. That committee will then decide whether or not to send it back with full recommendations. The building code would require on-site solar installations and wiring that would enable a switch to all-electric at a future date, if needed, for any new builds. Developers have expressed concerns that if the building code is approved, it would increase the cost of building in the state. Western Mass UPS workers held a practice picket yesterday as contract negotiations between the United Parcel Service and the Teamsters Union came to a standstill. About 100 UPS workers showed up in front of the warehouse in West Springfield. Both sides said the other is to blame in the negotiations ending.
9: Today we're going to have mostly cloudy skies and those storms and showers are here to stay. They should calm down by the late evening. We'll have highs in the mid to high 70s. Then tomorrow we'll have some spot showers throughout the day with the sun-cloud mix. Highs are in the mid to high 80s. I'm Jack Wu with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP.
8: This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media.
10: Yo soy Johan Rascíbega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La representante estadounidense Marjorie Taylor Greene, una fiel aliada del expresidente Donald Trump, fue expulsada del grupo House Freedom Caucus de línea dura después de enfrentarse con una colega legisladora, dijo un miembro del Caucus. La decisión de expulsar a la incendiaria Greene del grupo de línea dura de aproximadamente tres docenas de personas se produjo semanas después de que ella participara en un acalorado enfrentamiento en el piso de la Cámara de Representantes con la representante Lauren Boebert sobre el plan de esta última para tratar de forzar una votación para destituir al presidente demócrata Joe Biden. En otras informaciones, las autoridades estadounidenses otorgaron el jueves la aprobación total a un fármaco para el Alzheimer que se sigue de cerca, allanando el camino para que Medicare y otros planes de seguros comiencen a cubrir el tratamiento de las personas con la enfermedad que les roba el cerebro. La Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos aprobó el fármaco intravenoso Leqembi para pacientes con demencia leve y otros síntomas causados por la enfermedad de Alzheimer temprana. Es el primer medicamento que se ha demostrado de manera convincente que ralentiza modestamente el deterioro cognitivo causado por el Alzheimer. El proceso de conversión de un medicamento a la aprobación completa de la FDA generalmente atrae poca atención, pero los pacientes y defensores de la enfermedad de Alzheimer han estado presionando al gobierno federal durante meses después de que los funcionarios de Medicare anunciaran el año pasado que no pagarían el uso rutinario de medicamentos como el Ekembi hasta que recibieran la aprobación total de la FDA. La gran mayoría de los estadounidenses con Alzheimer obtienen su cobertura de salud a través de Medicare y las aseguradoras privadas han seguido su ejemplo al retener la cobertura de Leqembi hasta que reciban el respaldo completo de la FDA. Yo soy Johan Rashí Vega, y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
8: This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: And this is Black in the Valley with Amalkar Shabazz, who is a professor in the African, Africana. What's the name, proper name of the department, Shabazz? Well, it's
11: Afro-American. Afro American. African American Studies. Of department of Afro American Studies.
1: Yep. Okay. Thank you. Uh, where he has taught for many years and, of course, is a community activist and renowned for his activism. I would like to ask you your reaction to the Supreme Court's decision regarding affirmative action and how you think that is going to affect the university. We did ask President Marty Meehan when he was on the show last Thursday his thoughts about that. I'd really appreciate hearing yours. Professor?
11: Well, immediately as it came out, hitting me rather emotionally, I uh, put out that, that, you know, my opinion of the supreme this current uh, Supreme Court of the united states is it's a trash court um the uh the, the it's trash thinking it's trash politics um it's trash in uh, they're trash in terms of their ethics um and uh, and i'm not being partisan here but primarily uh the six that vote, that voted uh uh in the way that they did against affirmative action are the ones i are are most in the crosshairs of my criticism but a little more seriously um, what we have going on is this fight over as Lonnie Guineer points out uh, a meritocratic idea of society uh, merit being based upon a very um, specific set of criteria that we should not question the prosaic way of thinking about that that criteria is hard work i worked hard i bust my chops i did everything right i and versus um and i should be evaluated as an individual and if someone who did not work as hard again according to this narrow criterion of merit they should not get in over me and if they got in it had to be because of some bleeding heart Uh, racial liberalism that uh, that we've got to get rid of and uh, and so that kind of narrative has been been pushing its way up uh, ever since the ascendancy of uh, the vision the of the civil rights movement in the mid 1960s early 1970s it has been ascendant um, and, and 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 now it has finally achieved a certain measure of um, of victory uh, on the Supreme Court. I, however, um, think about the whole issue this way. When the Brown versus Board of Education decision came out in 1954, um, it was hailed. It had been pushed for for a long time by not just Thurgood Marshall, but even before that, Charles Hamilton Houston, a graduate of, uh, of Amherst College, who went on to Harvard, who was a brilliant legal mind that through the 30s the 40s he led this fight to to reverse the plessy uh decision and to kill jim crow and so you got this big victory in 54 that was fundamentally on the ground meaningless the schools systems in the country simply scratched their heads and said oh the local conditions won't allow me to do anything we'll will 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 spark riot we'll We'll have blood in the streets if we try to comply uh, uh, precipitously to this decision. And they did nothing. Ten years later, when I'm going to element, when I start elementary school, my public elementary school was 100% black. There was the teachers, the administrators, the secretaries, the janitors, and all of the students was 100% African American okay and this is 10 years after the brown decision so in my mind in some ways we should take a lesson from that and and really administrators people involved uh should just ignore it and say bring on the lawsuits okay and cite local conditions say that hey i'm afraid blood will flow in the streets if i if i act too precipitously to go in this colorblind, you know, direction of denying any race consciousness in pursuing a diverse campus. That's kind of where I'm sitting with it right now, Bill.
1: There's a part in Chief Justice Roberts' majority, Sixth Justice majority opinion, in which he says that schools, colleges, and universities uh, can... Look at an essay written by an applicant, which says and describes how race has affected his or her life through, and I'm quoting now, discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. Of course, Roberts immediately thereafter says, "Don't try to use what I just said to do an end run around my what I've just prohibited, which is affirmative action." But he does say that committees, admissions committees, can consider how race. A statement by an applicant how race has affected his or her life, and many people are looking at that and saying, "Okay, that's exactly what we're going to do," and are looking at it as a way, in fact, to have uh, African Americans and Hispanics and other uh, uh, non non uh, majority group uh, uh, persons apply successfully to colleges and universities. I don't know how that plays out exactly, but I do think that there is some hope there, and I'm wondering if you could
11: share your perspective. Um, Yeah, and and you made another, brought up another interesting point um, right after the decision came out uh, on the on the radio show, that how the the exemption that was given to the military academies, to West Point, to the Naval Academy, and so on, that uh, that it's okay for them. To uh, um, as they would see it, as Roberts would see it, practice racial discrimination because uh, we must have a diverse military command, but we don't need a diverse. Uh, <laughs> we don't need to take the any any extreme measures to create a diverse corporate boardroom uh, uh, situation. So, um, in in both cases, here is the, um, I think the, the the issue. I think that um, on the ground. Uh, In in real operating terms, um, it's going to be, um, again, they're trying to, to change the culture, to change the narrative, to change the discourse, and to really problematize how we think about the need to address the racial disparities, the racial inequities, the racism in this country that can have us watch on tv uh, a a police officer put his neck on him put his knee on a man's neck and killed him before our very eyes and tell us that it was all justified okay or that that it was it it wasn't it wasn't murder okay they they want to change that and that's going to be hard this decision will not accomplish it i'm already um you know we're already looking at down the road a case out of Alexandria, Virginia, concerning what they called an elite public high school and how now that case is working its way up to the Supreme Court, where uh, maybe next year this time, they're going to then strike down uh, what is effectively a race neutral policy at this uh, Alexandria, Virginia public high school. So uh, I think there's more to come. This is not a definitive word. And and Roberts's kind of, you know, statement there and the exemption to the military academies only shows that this is not the, the end of affirmative action. It's the beginning of the end, if you will.
1: We are speaking with Professor Amilcar Shabazz from the Afro-American Studies Department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and renowned community activist, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back i want to continue this conversation about what the supreme court said about the military academies it implied pretty pretty strongly that affirmative action in the military academies was fine because it's a matter of national security but colleges and universities and how people are educated now nah, that's not a matter of national security it's really bizarre we'll be right back
7: Ready to change your story. To fight the system. To fight the system.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. This week's Shop
5: Tuesday is Simple Gifts Farm Store. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Simple Gifts Farm releases gift certificates for their farm store in North Amherst. Get organic produce, pasture-raised meat, free-range eggs, local dairy, and more at Simple Gifts Farm Store. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Simple Gifts Farm Store in North Amherst. Available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 Store at whmp.com.
1: San Francisco's North Beach in the late 1950s, a new sound, a new scene, and the rich tradition of American folk music bolts into the national spotlight, leading the charge, the Kingston Trio.
4: Hang down your hip tongue to lead.
1: THE KINGSTON TRIO, A NIGHT AT NORTHAMPTON'S ACADEMY OF MUSIC, WEDNESDAY, JULY 19TH.
12: WELL, LET ME TELL YOU OF THE STORY OF A MAN NAMED CHARLIE ON A TRAGIC AND FATEFUL DAY.
1: TODAY'S KINGSTON TRIO, PLAYING THE TIMELESS SONGS. GET TICKETS NOW AT THE ACADEMY OF MUSIC WEBSITE OR BOX OFFICE. MORE THAN 50 YEARS AFTER TOM DOOLEY SHOT TO THE TOP OF THE CHARTS AND THE KINGSTON TRIO'S SPIRITED FOLK MUSIC CAPTURED THE HEARTS OF THE NATION, THE TRIO LIVES ON bringing all the energy to these enduring songs. The Kingston Trio, Wednesday, July 19th, 7 p.m., Academy of Music, downtown Northampton. Where have all the flowers gone? What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read like Happy Place by Emily Henry, Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website, have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store
0: you're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: On this edition of Black in the Valley with Amilkar Shabazz, Professor Shabazz and Buzz and I have been talking about affirmative action. And during the break, Buzz, you raised a question with the professor that I would like you to repose so our audience can hear. Please.
4: Uh, I did. Professor, um, I am very interested from your perch with your perspective, how you think that this is going to act, the affirmative action decision uh, saying that we should be race neutral in college applications and admi- admissions, how's this going to on the ground affect your life and those of other faculty members, staff members, and students at the university of Massachusetts at Amherst that is in the classroom, in, in, in the cafeteria. What do you envision this is going to do? To the population and the feeling at umass
11: sure let me start with the students you know um a lot of work uh, uh goes on at the university and, and 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 uh particularly after some of the real uh rise in um in in hate and and violent incidents against asian people asian americans um we, we've really had a, a lot of work to try to come together more uh, especially African Americans and Asian Americans, and people of African descent and people of Asian descent, and I think there's going to be an uptick in that kind of work toward greater solidarity, greater understanding. Um, you know, the cynical nature of this whole decision and the way it was was crafted by the uh, um, the, the folks who pushed this is that it suggested uh, efforts to try and. Um, uh, uh, you know repay and repair and uh, help African Americans in this society occurs necessarily uh to create quotas against Asian Americans and holding back Asian Americans who are working hard and doing doing all the right things and and uh, uh being model model uh, uh students and so I think it's going to to stimulate greater efforts uh across all groups to try to come together and understand. Um, and what this means, what this whole decision means and and the kinds of unity we ought to be working in the face of it. At the administrative and and faculty levels, um, I think some similar things will occur, but especially to, we really will need to sit and talk and and come to grips with what is this thing about creating an inclusive and diverse campus? Uh, What does it really mean and how, and is it important to achieve that? Number one, let's reaffirm, is this an important goal of our campus? And if so, then how do we achieve it in the face of this, this trash decision um, uh, and, and with all of its uh, loopholes and, and do this, but then don't start a regime that we are hereby declaring unlawful. So I think it's gonna stimulate us to really Sit down. I don't think the new chancellor coming in, Javier Reyes, is just going to be able to to from above, you know, give us uh, uh, new marching orders one way or another. I think if he's, I, I expect that he and his admin, new administration will try to work with us faculty to work from the ground up to think about how uh, how does this change our work, if you know, and in what ways do we need to be responsive to it.
1: The part of this decision, or one of the parts of this decision that I find so depressing and infuriating is this statement from the court. I want to share a couple sentences. The court says that after the Bakke decision, uh, which was the first affirmative action decision, the court repeatedly held that ameliorating societal discrimination does not constitute a compelling interest that would justify consideration of race in college admissions. Does not justify, is not a compelling enough interest. And the justification to this: well, if we did that for one group, like African-Americans, other groups would make the same claims. The Supreme Court comes out and emphatically says, that would be people asking for too much justice, and we can't have too much justice. It's just staggeringly horrifying. They really don't seem to recognize what they say or how they say it. It's so offensive. It's so depressing. It is so not what the Supreme Court should be doing. But here they are saying it rather emphatically.
11: Yeah. In a book that um, I wrote the introduction to and worked on editing some years ago, one of the earliest uh, publications on reparations called the 40 Acres Documents, one of the documents I included in there and, and, and commented on was the um, uh, argument, the rationale of um, President Andrew Johnson as to why he was vetoing the um, the the extension of the Freedmen's Bureau, the bill that was to extend uh, um, the Freedmen's Bureau? This is right after slavery, 1865, and uh, uh, the and his rationale was exactly the same logic. That in America we've never done anything for anybody who has faced adversity, whether adversity at the hands of the government or adversity in general, and we won't, we shouldn't start doing it now for the free people, okay? And they just have to, you know, suck it up, figure out how in this free society they're going to make it, and uh, but there will be no uh, reparations, there will be nothing to help them, and really, this is a lie because we have the Homestead Act, we've had other kinds of measures where the federal government have given people in, a, in society a leg up uh, uh, assistance. So it, it's, it's a patent lie that we don't um, try to ameliorate past injustices or help specific groups. It's this particular group that no one wants to help, the people that people, that racism doesn't want us to help. That's people of African descent.
1: And that's what the Supreme Court has said, in this case, is permissible. Professor Amakar Shabazz, thank you so very much.
11: Thank you, Buzz and Bill.
5: find local news and local talk for the Valley.
12: Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist.
0: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts.
5: The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass. W-H-M-T, Northampton sure and
0: W-R-S-I-H-D-2, Turner's Falls, WHM On Northampton Radio Group Station.
8: It's 10
13: o'clock.
0: This is CBS News on
7: the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. British marching troops greeted President Biden at Windsor Castle, where he discussed climate change with the king today. As he stepped up to the dais where King Charles was waiting, Mr. Biden seemed to perform a brief salute. The two shook hands, then stood side by side for the royal salute, then walked slowly among the rows of guards in their scarlet tunics and bearskin hats, reviewing the troops. Correspondent Vicki Barker from London, where Mr. Biden met with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at 10 Downing Street. Next, the president travels to a NATO summit in Lithuania, where the war in Ukraine will be high on the agenda. A reviled sports doctor survived a bloody brawl in prison. Here's CBS's Jim Crusula. The attack happened yesterday at the U.S. Penitentiary in Coleman, Florida. Larry Nasser said to be in stable condition after being stabbed several times in the back and chest by another inmate. He was sentenced to decades behind bars for sexually assaulting female gymnasts, including Olympic an urgent manhunt continues for a murder suspect in Pennsylvania considered armed and dangerous. Police say Michael Berman climbed up on some exercise equipment and tied together bedsheets to escape from a window at a northwestern jail last Thursday.
1: We have located small stockpiles or campsites in wooded areas in the general vicinity of Warren. We believe these sites are are associated
7: with Burham. Officials say he's a self-taught survivalist with military experience. Parts of New York State's Hudson Valley are drenched after massive rains, blamed for the death of a woman who tried to escape her flooded home correspondent Errol Barnett reports.
14: We're just north of West Point next to the Hudson River and the underground drainage pipe had been completely pulled away by the force of the water as well as the mud and the asphalt, the metal railing along this road as well. Behind me you can still hear the sound of the water rushing down this cliff below where we are. Earth moving machines
7: trying to clean things up. Several towns in Vermont are underwater. A judge in Oklahoma has thrown out a lawsuit demanding financial restitution for the three remaining survivors of 1921's Tulsa Race Massacre. The judge cited objections from the city, the Chamber of Commerce, and other state and local agencies. Jamie Foxx fans are a happy bunch.
0: It's our birthday!
7: TMZ video shows the actor smiling and throwing up a peace sign to onlookers as he cruised down the Chicago River on a boat. It's the first sighting of the Oscar winner since he was hospitalized in Georgia in April for an unspecified medical complication. This is CBS News.
0: Find great hires fast with Indeed. Their end-to-end hiring solution makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com
3: credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in, one of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff, so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. For WHMP News,
8: I'm Jess Tyler. The Commonwealth is pursuing plans to build a new $50 million women's prison to replace the one in Framingham. But activists are fiercely opposing the plans. In response, State Senator Joe Comerford introduced a bill that would place a moratorium on the construction or expansion of prisons and jails in Massachusetts. Comerford is advocating for increased access to education, job training, and medical care within prisons to break harmful cycles that leave people worse off when they get out of prison than when they were arrested.
7: I am not alone in believing that there is no such thing
8: as trauma-informed prisons and jails. No such thing. Incarceration is inherently traumatic. The prison moratorium bill would still allow for repairs to existing buildings, so current buildings could still be maintained and improved, just not expanded. Northampton City Council is considering a new building code that will discourage the use of fossil fuels. The City Council advanced the proposed order last month to the Committee on Legislative Matters. That committee will then decide whether or not to send it back with full recommendations. The building code would require on-site solar installations and wiring that would enable a switch to all-electric at a future date, if needed, for any new builds. Developers have expressed concerns that if the building code is approved, it would increase the cost of building in the state. Western Mass UPS workers held a practice picket yesterday as contract negotiations between the United Parcel Service and the Teamsters Union came to a standstill. About 100 UPS workers showed up in front of the warehouse in West Springfield. Both sides said the other is to blame in the negotiations ending.
9: Today we're going to have mostly cloudy skies and those storms and showers are here to stay. They should calm down by the late evening. We'll have highs in the mid to high 70s. Then tomorrow we'll have some spot showers throughout the day with the sun-cloud mix. Highs are in the mid to high 80s. I'm Jack Wu with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
4: And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And this, let me see. This is second Monday, which we're treating as first Monday. How's that work, Bill? Exactly. I'm a little confused.
1: We took the first Monday off. That's how it
4: works. That's how it works. So the first Monday segment, which is from our uh, our extraordinary good fortune of on a monthly basis being able to speak to. Professor Emeritus of Law, Bruce Miller from Western England uh, University School of Law. Um, we talk law, and uh, we have just seen the end of a Supreme Court of the United States session unlike no other in my lifetime, that's for sure. And uh, Bruce, welcome to the studio, and I'm so glad that you're here to make sense of all this for us.
14: Well, that's a, that's a tall order, but... Uh, yeah. but, but thank you for the welcome, and it's always good to be back with you guys.
4: So what we have uh, in the last week and a half or so was uh, we had a couple of voting rights cases, which surprised some of us because they weren't terrible. But then we, re- we sort of went back to terrible. We had the affirmative action uh, case that said that uh, race may not be considered in college and university admissions. We struck down uh, the student debt relief program. Um, websites can refuse to uh, serve certain patrons based on uh, their sexual orientation. Um, this was a rough session.
14: It was a rough go. Um, as you suggest, it might not have been quite as rough as, as we anticipated, uh, because there, there were a couple of decisions. Uh, at least we did not get the independent state legislature idea controlling our elections, and what remains of the Voting Rights Act was saved. To me, that means it wasn't quite as bad as last year's. But, boy, what a standard that is. This was a pretty rough year. Uh, and three cases uh, led, led the way. And, and they are, they, two. you mentioned uh, two of the three, uh, the affirmative action case, and of course, your last segment was very insightful about about that, and uh, the, uh, the the marriage website case, which is which to me is is each of these is sort of marks a beginning of what's going to be a protracted round of very divisive litigation that so is likely to per, to sort of pervade the country's atmosphere for the next few years. The third decision is, to my mind, the most important in the long term, and that's the decision striking down President Biden's uh, effort to uh, discharge student loan obligations because of the uh, pandemic uh, emergency. That case has effectively locked in, I think, the death of administrative law as we have known it for almost a a century, and that's an extremely dangerous case. So Bruce
1: Miller, Professor Emeritus, Emeritus, of law at Western New England University School of Law, I would like you to tell our listeners why their eyes should not glaze over yeah. when you use the phrase administrative law, yes. and I'll give a hint, Yes, which is your life and most of what you know about how the American government works depends on this, so De- it, tell us.
14: Depends on federal administrative agencies, It is federal administrative agencies that are responsible for enforcing acts of Congress. Without federal administrative agencies operating to carry out laws like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, all of our environmental statutes, um, almost all of our labor statutes, um, basically, American business would be completely free to do whatever it wanted to do, regardless of what Congress said. And the, and Supreme, the Supreme Court has Supreme Co- said this
1: is okay because they invented a new doctrine. They, did. they said that Congress, when it wrote the laws, did. did not comply with this doctrine, which didn't exist, and therefore they can strike down all mm-hmm. of the actions by all of these administrative agencies. They Explain they that did. to us. They,
14: they, in fact, invented two... One is is this idea of major questions, and that is whenever one of the agencies or departments, and here it was the Department of Education seeking to waive student loan obligations, whenever an agency does that, if it's important, and importance is measured by the Supreme Court, whatever it happens to think is important, if it's important... Congress has to have specifically authorized in advance the measure taken by the agency. Which, which generally Congress speaking, will never happen.
1: Congress didn't do and didn't do when they passed these
14: laws because this theory hadn't even been invented. Well, c- Congress uh, necessarily has to delegate broad application power to the agencies because nobody can anticipate what's going to happen in the future. Right. So and- when Congress passes a statute in the 1930s— it doesn't know what conditions are going to be like 80 or 90 years later, and of course, it gives to the agency the power to apply that act to new conditions. This is how law works. The Supreme Court has said not anymore. If it's a major question, Congress has to have named it in advance, addressed it in advance, in order for the agency to act. This this is this is a p- part of a, an attack on the very idea of regulating American capital. And it's been a dream of the far right, uh, well, for a long, long time. It's in in effect an effort to carry us back not just pre-New Deal, but back to sort of the constitutional days of, of, of the McKinley administration where uh, American corporations did what they wanted and nobody asked any questions. That's why it's such a dangerous doctrine. The The second thing, after major questions, is this idea of a clear statement from Congress being required whenever an agency or department interferes with the rights of private property owners. Well, all regulation affecting American capitalism interferes with what otherwise would be the untrammeled rights of property owners. Uh, Here, the Supreme Court in the Clean Water Act case said that if private property owners' rights to develop their property as they see fit is gonna be interfered with, Congress again has to have named this precise regulation that the agency is, is using to regulate private property. These are devastating and crippling decisions and this court has been on a march to accomplish this goal of deregulation. Justice Kagan devastatingly pointed this out in her uh, dissenting uh, opinion um, in, in in the case involving student loans. She says, from the first page to the last, today's opinion departs from the demands of judicial restraint. At the behest of a party that has suffered no injury, the majority decides a contested public policy issue properly belonging, belonging to the political account, politically accountable branches and the people they represent. So K- Kagan has called it for uh, what it is. Um, and and, and uh, we have, we have uh, this advance on what I called administrative law, and you properly made it real, Bill. It's actually the power of government to protect us.
1: I'd like your comment on one other aspect of sure. this, and that is the Supreme Court lying. And the Supreme Court is lying because it's saying we're making this decision because Congress did not make a statement. We're making this statement because Congress did not authorize the agency to decide this major question. Questions that didn't exist at the time the statute was passed... And law that didn't exist at the time the statute well, was – they made well, up the so, law decades and decades uh, later yeah, and said, this, see, yeah. Congress 20 years ago, you didn't do what we said you had to do 30, 40 this, years this, after the fact. Congress wrote the laws for the law for the law as it stood at the time, at the not time. as Roberts made it up That's in true. 2022 uh, or
14: 2023. Each of these ideas, this special clear statement rule and the major questions are inventions of the Roberts court just in the last two or three Uh, years. Uh, You're absolutely right. Uh, You know, know, a a further uh, departure from how we expect courts to act is this idea of standing to sue, which is, of course, something we lawyers love to delve into. Can I just, I just want to simplify things. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Buzz.
4: When the court, when our judicial system was created as a third branch... It, it says in that article that there has to be an actual case or controversy case or controversy So what we did is we created as lawyers over yep. 250 years yep. or whatever this notion of judiciability which means if something is not ripe that is it's not a real problem yet
10: yep, yep. court yep. can't
4: entertain it in the federal court yep. Yep. if something is uh, has been resolved it's moot court can't entertain it yep. Congress can't ask for an advisory opinion what if? can't do that because it's non-judiciable. Standing means there has to be actual case or controversy, people actually involved.
14: And, And the measure of a case or controversy is do you have somebody who is hurt or is about to be hurt by the policy that they challenge? The idea behind this is that to legitimize what our courts do. Their job is to remedy injuries suffered by humans, not to pass on what's legal in the abstract, but to do what courts have always done in the Anglo-American system, which is to correct specific wrongs, or even general wrongs, but wrongs. So in this website case, who was harmed? uh, In the website case, nobody was harmed yet. The, uh, the 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 would be proprietor of the website didn't even have it up yet, and was planning to offer this sort of Christian based wedding announcement. So there, uh, in Colorado,
4: there was a statute that the said,
14: ca- and no one had asked for the service. Uh, there was and there was no enforcement undertaken by Colorado. This was a setup in order to get a case in front of a federal court. So is this the United was, States
4: Supreme Court ignoring this notion of a standing well that it, had been core to its mission it, for so many years? They,
14: they, they, they did ignore it. Uh, they didn't talk about it at all. The dissent didn't talk about it at all. The court did not even include it in, in their uh, grant of certiorari, which is the way they decide what issues they're going to resolve the where where the standing issue really got developed and played out was in the student loan case in the student loan case the suit was brought by a bunch of states how is it that the states are hurt if some students get their loans forgiven by the government by the federal government by the federal government a big mystery to me how how do they do it well Many of the states, and and in this case, one of them in particular, Missouri, had established a private corporation, chartered by the state, whose job was to service student loans. If the loans were forgiven, this servicing agency was going to lose the profits it might make from servicing the loans but the agency was separate from the state, a different entity, legally, financially, and in every way, and they were fine with the loans being forgiven, they didn't sue. Missouri sued on behalf of their corporate entity that they had created, and the Supreme Court said that counts as an injury. There couldn't be a more blatant rush to issue what amounts to an advisory opinion That is not a real case Non-judicial, giving advice, non-justiciable, advice in the abstract. So here's what I wanted to ask you, Professor Bruce Miller, and
4: I can't tell you how happy we are to have you here today. It seems like history, I learned when I was in elementary school, history gives us the opportunity to stand on the shoulders of those who came before us and see what they saw, but from a better perspective. That's why the law, if you're going to have a rule of law, not a rule of individuals, but a rule of law you rely on this notion of precedence. There's yeah. a legal term, stare decisis, yep. but what came before us. Yep. So here, when we're talking about ignoring this age-old concept of standing that we've always respected, a harm is required that we've always respected, and what mm-hmm. Bill was, was talking about, th- this th- th- these new inventions, the Dobbs case from last session ignores precedent, ignores history, and our, our top law is coming from a Supreme Court that won't recognize history. What do you say about that?
14: Well, well, we value precedent. Uh, You know, lawyers live by it. But we all value it because it stands for a couple of very important ideas. One is treating like cases alike. If a previous case has, has come along... Uh, and it has been resolved a particular way. A next case that is sufficiently similar ought to be resolved the same way unless there's a good reason for changing it. Now, precedent is never absolute because the law does need to change in light of new conditions. But that's a, a strong weight on the scale, treating like cases alike. The second main purpose that precedent serves is to constrain judges to keep us from having to live under the whims of particular justices simply because the personnel on the court changes. And all of the decisions that we've been talking about are directly attributable to the Trump appointment of three new justices. The ideology that explains of the and accounts for all of it. And their the, ideologies. Exactly. The disregard of, of precedent, the creation of these new doctrines, uh, the, the placing of uh, gay and lesbian rights in the, in, in the public world of public accommodations, which is a big world, commercial business, uh, up completely up for grabs, and 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 what is now going to be a protracted period of chaos on questions of of race. We are
4: speaking with Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back and see what, through his eyes, what we expect this court to look like in the wake of this difficult session.
0: talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg coming up right here on whmp
5: find local news and local talk for the valley it
13: is critical that
5: the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination but includes
2: the alleged allegations of corruption nepotism abuse of power and use of position to aid miss cunningham's personal business these allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a title IX investigator
0: where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information
12: and the arts. The Branford Marsalis Quartet plays a kaleidoscopic range of jazz and popular classics. They're on their way to UMass, a theatrical concert style show that chronicles the journey shared by Paul and Artie. The Simon and Garfunkel story is coming to UMass. The UMass Fine Arts Center season. Tickets are on sale now. America's premier flamenco dance company, Flamenco Vivo Carlotta Santana. UMass alum Stephen Kellogg reads from his book, Objects in the Mirror, and performs favorite songs. The UMass Fine Arts Center. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, and performances you just can't categorize. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the complete calendar. The new season is here. Get your tickets now.
5: The Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their
0: wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having
12: fun with food
0: since 1986. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
4: And we are back with Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller, and he was just talking with Attorney Bill Newman. We were talking about standing and just um, uh, there's so much to be talked about. But one of the things we really have to talk about is this notion of compelled speech. Yeah. Can, can, can you speak? Can you speak to us uh, about compelled I, I, speech? And
14: I, I don't feel in the slightest compelled to to, <laughs> to do so either, Buzz. Yeah. Yeah. To to me, the uh, the case from Colorado involving the uh, website, the Christian wedding website operator, uh, in in addition to probably being a setup case.
4: Um, Meaning there was no standing, no uh, real, no case real, or no real,
14: no real case. At least not not yet. On the merits of that case, to me it was a very close question. I believe that the court got it wrong, but this, this might be my, my, my lifelong card-carrying ACLU stature. Um, I'm very sympathetic to arguments that the government not, ought not to be able to compel someone to speak against what they believe. Um, uh, the issue that made this one different is that uh, the the website operators were not really acting as citizens they were acting as participants in the marketplace and participants in the marketplace uh, are required to abide in every state and by in the United States by the anti-discrimination principle. In a few seconds, can you describe to us what
4: public accommodation means? We public accommodation
14: means you're you're in business to provide a service to the public.
4: And you can't say, oh, you're black, I won't serve uh, you. You're Jewish, I won't serve
14: you. That's exactly right. Uh, but how
4: about you're gay, I won't and, serve and
14: you. And in this case, uh, the court said, if you're gay, I won't serve you. And they said, Okay. And they did so on what is, for right now, a very narrow ground. And that is that the service that the website operator was offering was, number one, customized, individually tailored to each, to each wedding, and secondly, involved the speech of the website operator. They were going to be designing it. So it's possible that this is a very narrow, in my view, still wrong exception. But to illustrate why this is a tough case for me, here in Massachusetts, about 25 years ago, a feminist family lawyer named Judith Nathanson uh, represented women uh, in divorce Proceedings and these were partic- in particular women who had been the primary source of support for their husbands, who tended to be rich doctors and lawyers, putting them through law school and medical school, and then who were uh, abandoned by their husbands after after uh, the support was done and the gravy started to roll in. Um, and and MCAD um, uh, came after Judith Massachusetts Nathanson.
4: Commission against Discrimination. Yes,
14: because she would not represent men in divorce cases. It's a very close similarity to the case that we see now. I think it's different because Judith Nathanson argued that in order to represent the female uh, plaintiffs uh, that she was in business to represent, big part of her ability to do that was uh, the, the solidarity that came from being able to present herself as someone who represented only women. In other words, her ability to represent women effectively, as she saw it, depended on her ability not to hold out the same service to men. But as a general matter, we lawyers cannot and ought not to be allowed to uh, discriminate in whom we offer our services to. Um, and we are, are not viewed as believing automatically in uh, any view we express on behalf of a client, uh, and nor should a website operator. And, and uh, so in that case, I, th- I think the court got it wrong, but I do think that this idea of compelled speech is an important one, and we are now gonna see a wave of litigation about what counts as expressive activity for purposes of a commercial business and what does not. Uh, we also have the, the intrusion of religion into this case. I think there's a chance that because this was a religious motivation that the nose is under the tent for a religious exemption to public accommodation laws altogether. But it's a problem for
4: me, Bruce Miller, yeah. because I was raised in Atlanta. Yep. I remember colored water yep. fount- fountains and colored bat- bathrooms and, and, and restaurants saying, it's our restaurant, we are free, don't interrupt, yep. don't, don't interfere with our ability sure. to pick and choose sure. who we make food for, no, exactly that's up right. to us. So exactly right, Ollie's Barbecue. What's yeah,
14: the difference? Yeah, yeah. Is it that uh, compelled speech? It's it, Well, the only thing that can differentiate it is is uh, if, if, if what the service that you are providing requires that you tailor speech in a particular way to a particular client, and that that speech violates your most fundamental uh, beliefs. I don't think that's enough to allow for a compelled speech um, uh, exemption, but I do think it it presents a close and difficult case, because I think there are situations, Nathanson's being one of them, where compelled speech ought not to be permitted to the government, even if it means... Uh, that there's an exclusion by a, 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 a provider of public services. I, I
4: really want to hear Bill Newman's thinking here after somebody who's been working yeah, for Bill almost a half a century sort of for the, the ACLU. Of questions. You've been protecting speech for a
1: long time. This was a set-up case. It was. Uh, it was an invented problem for yep. the purpose of getting this case to the Supreme Court. Exactly right, uh, as was Nathanson's. And this case is similar, I think, to other cases in which the court has uh, seized an opportunity, gone outside the normal channels so it could decide the case, one of which was the affirmative action cases, yep. uh, which had no business being at the court. Yep. court went down to the lower courts, seized it before there was even a final judgment, said, we're yeah. going to decide this. Yeah. Uh, why? Because they really wanted to get to they it did. and make the decision they, they made. Uh, I think that in the, crea- in the uh, uh, creative uh What's the, 303 number? Creative. Yeah. Creative, um, the the name of the website um, uh, that the issue is an invented issue. And we have to be very, very careful, I think, while I oppose to compelled speech. I'm not at all clear that this is compelled speech. Yeah. This is something pretty mechanical. It's yeah. not like yeah. go and paint a, Pica- you know, Picasso, go paint a yeah. painting for me. It, right. It's much less than that. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah. I'm not it, sure that the that the website owner is being forced to say anything personal. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I'm, uh, I I I I, I well, I'm, agree. I'm, it I'm raises. I'm not
14: I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. I'm I'm I am concerned. I guess as as in a world of precedent, assuming we live in one even partially, about the future case implications. This one was a, 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 a setup case for sure. I mean I've, I mean h- how many gay couples are going to want to pick a homophobic web's website operator and say, "I want you. I want you to d- make these these yeah.
1: this create uh, create this website you know, for the most important the, the, day of my life." The case
14: was a pure setup. There hadn't been anybody who had requested, which it is why the Supreme Court should been. never have taken the case. Well, there it should have been dismissed in the lower federal courts for lack of standing, absence of an injury, absence of any enforcement proceeding. It wasn't a real case, and I hear your point as being, Bill. Here, there is unlikely to ever be a real case. Um, On the other hand, there are instances where the government can get in the business of telling people what they have to say. And there are some instances, I think, where people who say things for a living ought not to be compelled. And the question is uh, figuring out when those are. This wasn't one of them.
4: Well, we're going to have you back on to help us figure out when those situations are, Bruce Miller. As always, here's the good news. Because we're doing First Monday on the second Monday, we don't have to wait as long to have you back on the show. Just three weeks. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Buzz and Bill. We're going to take a break. We're going to be right back with Writer's
0: Block with Megan Zinn. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Commonwealth is pursuing plans to build a new $50 million women's prison to replace the one in Framingham. But activists are fiercely opposing the plans. In response, State Senator Joe Comerford introduced a bill that would place a moratorium on the construction or expansion of prisons and jails in Massachusetts. Comerford is advocating for increased access to education, job training, and medical care within prisons to break harmful cycles that leave people worse off when they get out of prison than when they were arrested.
7: I am not alone in believing that there is no such thing as trauma-informed prisons and jails. No such thing. Incarceration is inherently traumatic. The prison
8: moratorium bill would still allow for repairs to existing buildings, so current buildings could still be maintained and improved, just not expanded. Northampton City Council is considering a new building code that will discourage the use of fossil fuels. The City Council advanced the proposed order last month to the Committee on Legislative Matters. That committee will then decide whether or not to send it back with full recommendations. The building code would require on-site solar installations and wiring that would enable a switch to all-electric at a future date, if needed, for any new builds. Developers have expressed concerns that if the building code is approved, it would increase the cost of building in the state. Western Mass UPS workers held a practice picket yesterday as contract negotiations between the United Parcel Service and the Teamsters Union came to a standstill. About 100 UPS workers showed up in front of the warehouse in West Springfield. Both sides said the other is to blame in the negotiations ending.
9: Today we're going to have mostly cloudy skies and those storms and showers are here to stay. They should calm down by the late evening. We'll have highs in the mid to high 70s. Then tomorrow we'll have some spot showers throughout the day with a sun-cloud mix. Highs are in the mid to high 80s. I'm Jack Wu with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP
5: got chronic joint pain not having success with steroids but trying to avoid surgery well thankfully there's a better way and now it's available here from the medical professionals at qc kinetics i'm talking about new advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints providing lasting relief with no drugs no surgery and no downtime this is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief qc kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450
7: what's cooking at river valley co-op here's avid eater grocery shopper and co-op member bill newman ah summer in new
1: england and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries basil and tomatoes an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables in the co-op meat department local chicken from reed farm house-made brats sausage lots of grilling ideas and in the co-op cheese department get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad
15: Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at or call me at 586-7400.
5: WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
4: And welcome back to the show. It is time for Writer's Block, where... Megan Zinn tells us non-literati <laughs> what's going on in the world of literati. I'm
13: sure you're very literate, Buzz. Um, my, so my guest today is Kate Senegal. And um, Kate is a writer and a writing coach, developmental editor, and educator. Welcome,
15: Kate. Thank you so much.
13: Um, so to start, um, I think you know most people know what a writer is and certainly know what an educator is, and we'll talk about that. But I don't think most people know what a writing coach is or what a developmental editor is. So, can you tell us a bit about what those are and how do you, and and what you do in those roles?
15: Yeah. Um, sometimes when I talk about coaching, I joke that I'm sort of like a therapist between <laughs> the writer and their book. But okay. um, coaching couples is, therapy. Yeah, sort okay. of. Um, coaching is really fun. It happens in these hour long meetings, usually on Zoom or in person, and um, I work with a writer around. Process, or you know, helping them suss out things like how often feels good to write, and mm-hmm. um, when do you revise, and how do you best receive your ideas? You know, do you need to talk things out? Do you need to write things down? Um, and are you an outliner or are you a pantser? Um, <laughs> See to the pantser, I think. Yeah, yes. yeah, things like that, and then. Um, so th- I'll work that way with a writer who's maybe just starting a project or is a, is very beginner um, and we might do sort of on-the-fly little craft lessons, you know, like this is how plot works okay. and mm-hmm. here are some ways you can better develop your character and then with writers that are further along I'll read pages ahead of a session and give them comments and mm-hmm. then we spend the time talking through the comments and brainstorming how they might address them or you know, just checking in on sort of like what's the vision and is this really getting us there? What if you tried this? or you know, and then I can offer deadlines and mm, homework. Mm-hmm. And some people just like to know that they have a meeting with me coming yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then they're like, oh, I got to get the pages in because right. I have to send them to Kate. Um, so it's a really fun process. Yeah, yeah. And the developmental editing is sort of like, it's it's like a big picture assessment. Mm-hmm. So um, someone will send me a draft of a short story or a full novel and I'll read it and then write them margin notes or a long letter that's sort of like, this is what I see the plot is doing, mm-hmm. and here are where I'm seeing plot holes, or this is where I didn't understand the character, or I had questions about this, and then I might make recommendations about the next phase of revision. Um, so depending on where the draft is, if it's a really early draft, then mm-hmm. I'll sort of move through an assessment of all technique. Yeah. But if it's close to done, then I might do some copy edits or um, some... Smaller picture okay. suggestions. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's really about kind of meeting the writer where they are.
4: Okay. How, well, in terms of where the writers are, maybe this is for both of you, um, Megan and Kate. How did sometimes people have problems finding their voice? Mm-hmm. They know what they want to say, but they don't know quite how to say it. How do you help somebody find their voice? Oh, yeah, that's, that's a, a great really question. that's
15: <laughs> a fun one. Um, you know, one exercise I might have writers do is to write a scene from the perspective of all the characters that are present, mm-hmm. um, and I might suggest that they work in first person, even if the book is in third, um, just so they can feel what it's like to talk from somebody else's point of view. Um or sometimes i might have them reach for their real life and think about a conflict they've had recently and tr- and write that story uh-huh. as themselves yeah, and then smart. write that story from the perspective of somebody else or to reach for somebody who has like a big personality in their life mm-hmm. and and try to embody that voice it's like an elaborate game of pretend it can be <sighs> really fun and yeah, you know fun. once you lower the stakes in that way the writer can Get a little loose creatively, mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. process becomes fun. And then there's a different way in.
13: Yeah, play a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. Um, and so you also teach. Um, not you don't just do the one-on-one coaching and and editing. Tell us about the courses that you teach.
15: Yeah. So right now, um, I, my teaching is really centered on this um, new community-based offering I just rolled out. That's called Book Buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, So it's a membership-based ongoing series where writers will either um, join one of two groups. One is an output group that's focused on generative writing. So we work with prompts. We write together for an hour. And then um, writers might share some parts of what they wrote. And then we talk process and craft. And and then the input group is more focused on feedback. Okay. So both groups meet biweekly and there's a community Slack channel that everybody is in touch with each other, and there's a book club that they get to go to bi-monthly, and there's some in-person events, so Mm -hmm. the idea there is to create a sense of camaraderie, Mm -hmm. um, a sense of community, writing can be so lonely. So solitary, Um, yeah. And just to have an ongoing, fluid conversation about your work, Mm -hmm. and an opportunity to learn about craft if that's what you need in the moment, or an opportunity to talk to someone about, you know, like, hey, I've been getting up at five to write every day for my whole life, and now it's not working. Mm-hmm. Like, what do I do? What do I do, yeah. Um, and then I teach an in-person critique group. Mm-hmm. All these things meet biweekly. Okay.
4: Um, Will a group be both nonfiction and fiction?
15: Yeah, yeah. So I work with all prose writers. I love poetry, but I'm terrible at it. So I, don't, I don't coach <laughs> people in, the, there, in there that There are area. other teachers for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so essay writers, memoir writers, mm-hmm. short story writers. I write fiction personally, so that is sort of like... What I might gravitate for, but I love working with memoir writers. I think it's so cool. I could never be brave enough to just like <sighs> well, you're, feel you're like here is there. my story and all of its truth. Um, I like to hide yeah. <laughs> behind fake things,
13: hide behind um, fiction. Sure. Yeah. Um, so my guest is, is writer and editor Kate Senegal. Um And um, how do you how do you approach your classes? I mean, what? Um, well, you. It sounds like you. It's a mix sometimes of of Direct critique, maybe sometimes more on the positive end of the critique, not necessarily the negative, but sort of how, what's your approach to sort of your philosophy of teaching writing?
6: I mean, I
15: like to think of myself as more of like a facilitator rather than Mm. a teacher where Mm -hmm. I'm sort of helping people assess their own needs as a creative person and to discover themselves as a creative person. Um, And so... The classes I teach are geared toward offering up a a bunch of different systems Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and helping the writer think through what might work for them. And then, of course, I mean, there is real tactile stuff to learn about technique. And um, so that's a lot of my role, too, is writing lectures about um, what exactly is plot, how do you create narrative tension, how do you develop a character. um, But there's no one way in. Mm -hmm. So I I think... That's the beauty of teaching is like yeah. you want to create an effect that sort of feels this way um, and you can get there using six different highways. Yeah. So which one do you prefer? Mm-hmm.
13: Yeah. Um, so Kate Seneca, um, how do people find more details about your services and your courses?
15: So I have a website. It's kateseneca.com. Um, so that's can, easy. Yeah. <laughs> that's um, an easy one. Yeah. I'm on Instagram, right with Kate is my Instagram handle. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's nice. Have
13: yeah. you tried out the new one?
15: I haven't. Okay.
13: Threads. We, we don't we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> um, um, well, great. I think we'll take a break, and um, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about your writing and about writing in general. Great. Thank you.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5. 1400 and 1240 join me noon to three eastern time monday through friday right here on the tom hartman program whmp
7: You love your car, we all do, it's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 Amherst, and online at Forthillcs.com.
12: Are you
5: tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience in a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton.
8: I grew up in a normal home in a normal town. All of a sudden, everything got crazy. I didn't talk to anybody about the way I was feeling. I was scared and I was alone. I started drinking. I just didn't want to deal with what was happening in my life. I knew about AA, but thought I was too young. I found out I was wrong. If you have a problem with your drinking, why don't you give AA a call? Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up.
5: Online and in person meetings. For more, call 413 532 2111 or visit westernmassaa.org.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
13: We're back. Uh, this is Megan Zinn with Writer's Block and I'm talking to Kate Senecal who is a writer and writing coach and, and developmental editor and educator and, and during the break we were having a great conversation more about <laughs> writing, which we should have been having on the on the air. And um, Kate was talking about um, r- working with a writer who is do- doing essays and doing braided essays and we were really fascinated by what is the concept of braided essays um, and braided writing. Can you tell us about that a little bit?
15: Yeah, so the idea is that you might take three different threads of a thought Mm -hmm. um, that have some overlap ideologically, Mm -hmm. and you would structurally arrange them so you sort of move through the three sections over and over again so the experience feels like a braid of ideas.
13: Really interesting. So
15: you can find connections between things that don't seem connected, like the rise of AI and the grief you feel when a parent dies. Um, And then, you know, it's Mm -hmm. the writer's exposition around the research that sort of ties all these things together in an interesting way. Wow, that's very cool. Yeah.
4: AI being artificial intelligence, I'm just, yeah. w- what is that, like an obituary that's written by <laughs> a machine?
15: That could be a way to link it together, yeah, for sure. You know, So say someone talks about the experience of their mom dying, and like a way to parse through the grief, grief is that they asked ChatGPT to write an obituary, and then you might write a scene that... Yeah talks about what chat gpt says specifically about your mother oh, yeah, yeah. and whether that's eerily specific or totally off base and that's devastating in some way i mean it mm-hmm. could be really yeah. cool
4: turns yeah. out it, the mother was a robot yeah right
13: <laughs> or chat chat gpt as therapist <laughs> right. which is probably happening already <laughs> it's, it's uh, coming for us <laughs> it's coming for us um how did you how did you get into doing this work um to the teaching side of it oh, the coaching wow
15: um you know, it happened in a really piecemeal kind of mm-hmm. way. I started to do these one-off gigs with schools, um, you know, like that run creative writing programs for adults. And I was teaching um, in the – I taught at UMass for a little while. I taught research writing, and then I was teaching at HCC, the freshman comp. And um, and then really once COVID happened mm-hmm. and everything went on Zoom, suddenly, you know, there was a wider audience yeah. I was not – sort of beholden to the local area, and um, it didn't take very long before I could make this my full-time
13: oh, work. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it was that's really cool. Great. Particularly in this area, there's so many people, there's so many writers and so many people who want that kind of support. So you are also a writer, um, so tell us a little bit about your work. You're you're working on a novel currently, correct? I your first am, novel.
15: Yeah, I just finished the first draft of a novel. Um, that's set in the 2016, 2017 election era. <laughs> um, I'm interested in talking about that time because it feels like a very rare historical moment where mm-hmm. while we were in it, we knew we were in it. Yeah, you know, that yeah. things, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. things were about to change in a irrevocable way. And I also think it's the moment where we started to lose the capacity to speak with nuance in mm-hmm. public discourse mm-hmm. And it was sort of a reckoning between our public and our private selves. And that is analogous to what all of the characters are facing Mm -hmm. in their personal lives. Mm -hmm. I'm
4: sorry. We have to go back to that. Lost our ability to speak in nuance. What does that mean?
15: Well, I feel like politically we kind of like moved into camps, you know. Very black and white. And um, because things are happening in tweets or online, it's like you just get the base kernel and then conversations kind of spiral, or, you know, it's like you're sort of pushed into a position, but that position might be nuanced. You think about the way that we were talking about, oh man, I don't even know if I want to like pick any political issue, and it's like, there's like you either think this or you think this, but the reality is all of the issues are complicated, Um, and many of us holds nuanced and complex opinions, and there's not a lot of space to parse through that yeah. in the public discourse, I right. think.
13: Yeah, I think that's really true. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of the general plot and characters, or is it too early for that? Yeah, part, yeah? I
15: think, you know, there's a character who's, who um, is grappling with her desire to be a creative person mm-hmm. and not a mother who mm-hmm. becomes pregnant mm-hmm. and then has to deal with that. And her, um, you know, her husband who is sort of grappling with some climate terror, but a deep desire to parent, and that feels like a conflict for yeah. him. Yeah, okay. um, and a child character who's in middle school trying to figure <laughs> out, you know, who he's going to be. And they all kind of mix together in a pot of uh, crises and strife and sometimes hilarity, I mm-hmm. hope. Oh, you good, know? Good, I hope good, it's funny good, sometimes.
13: Good. Um, my, my guest is Kate Senecal, writer and uh, writing coach and editor. Um, what do you love about, this kind of backing up to you you're teaching and your coaching. What do you love about that work?
15: Oh, man, so much. I mean... I just find the creative process to be so interesting, and everybody goes about it in a different way. Um, So that process of figuring out what a person needs to create is so fun. It's like a logic puzzle every time. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's an exciting emotional experience to have, and it's full of vulnerability and roadblocks and um, exhilaration, and so to be part of somebody else's uncovering of a story or, um, or just like seeing somebody develop some confidence when mm-hmm. they're, you know, you can be really afraid to be vulnerable. And then once your story starts to move that, you know, a client might start to light up and get really excited. and That's really fun to be yeah, a part of. Yeah.
13: It must be thrilling to get to the end point too, to see somebody like f- complete their novel and move it on to the next yeah, yeah. stage. Yeah. Yeah.
15: Yeah. Yeah. I had a my first um, developmental editor client just got published and that was <gasps> really cool. Oh, that's fantastic!
13: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's very exciting. I won't ask you to name name that, but I'll ask you afterwards. Um, oh. uh, so, um, what what how is you know being a teacher um, and a coach and an editor? How does it? How has that impacted your own writing?
15: Oh, you know, both in great and debilitating <laughs> ways. You know, it's like my. I have to hold a lot of space in my brain for other people's projects and it can be challenging to make space for my own. Um, you know, my creativity gets tapped out at the end of the day Mm -hmm. from coaching and then Mm -hmm. I can't really work on my own book, but I've gotten really diligent about finding space. Um, so that's actually been good container for me. Um, that's like, I know that something is going to take from me in this area, so I have to preserve the time. Um, but also it's just so inspiring and exciting to see all my students and clients reach these milestones. So I always feel sort of like, well, if I'm cheering them on, like I can't be a hypocrite and not do my own work, you know, (laughs) um, or seeing them have victories is really exciting. And I get motivated to, you know, get in there with my own stuff. Okay. All right. Do you ever, um, as somebody, I'm,
13: I'm, I'm a copy editor and line editor, so I've never, and I've done a little bit of what you do of developmental editing, and I've always been kind of afraid to go in that direction because like, what if I don't have anything to say? What if I can't fix their problem, or or I don't have suggestions on how to fix their problems? Have you run into that where you just
15: don't know
13: what kind of feedback to give them?
15: It's hard to choose which direction to go Mm -hmm. when giving feedback, and I always have a moment where Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know, but it always comes. I think really once you see the kernel of intention, then it's easy to say, I think these are the pathways available to you. Mm -hmm. All right. How well do you have
4: to know the person, Mm. though, in order to help them, again, find their voice?
15: Well, you know, there are pros and cons in each direction. If you don't know them at all, you're just left with the work. Mm -hmm. So then um, the noise goes away, and then I can just look at what I think they're trying to do. But if I know them really well, then Mm -hmm. I already kind of know a little bit about the intention, and it's easier to... Yeah, help them move forward. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah,
13: um, what are what are writers that have influenced you both as a writer and has influenced your your coaching and your teaching and mm-hmm. your editing?
15: That's a great question. So my very first favorite writer was Lori Moore. Okay, um, mm-hmm. she writes beautiful short stories, and um, I think George Saunders is an ah, inspirational yeah, teacher. To, his, to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, his Story Club Substack is like just a miracle. He's so prolific. I can't believe mm-hmm. how much stuff he posts all the time. Um, yeah, so those are two big role models for me. All right. Yeah.
13: yeah. Wow, wonderful. And what are you, just to finish off, what are you reading? What are you reading now? Or what have you read recently
15: that you've loved? Oh, well, I'm reading um, Meg Tatey's book, Super Bloom, who's a local writer. Oh, I don't, I'm not um, familiar with her. It's a beautiful book. Out. It's all over the place. I 10 out of 10 recommend you <laughs> pick it up. Oh, that's really great.
13: Um, and, um, and, and just um, another question that I love to throw out at people. Um, who's your favorite character? in a book or or one of your favorite characters? And and if you know why, why?
15: (laughs) I think... um Anne of Green Gables is oh, one of my all time, yeah. all-time all-time yeah. favorites. She really taught me that it was best to just be myself in any circumstance I, I encounter, even I if it's that. disastrous at first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
13: and I think if you talk to a lot of women of a certain age, <laughs> you will get that same yeah. answer. Anne <laughs> yeah. of Green Gables, or maybe yeah. just women in general. Hopefully, some some boys as well um, had that influence. Yeah. Um, so my guest, my guest has been um, writer and editor and coach Kate Senecal. Um, and again, tell us the, your website. People want to find you.
15: It's katesenecal.com.
13: All right. Well, thank you, and good luck and with your book. Senical, S-E-N-E. Senecal. S E N E C A L. Oh, I guess I should have said that. Yes, S e n e c a l. Yeah, correct. All thank right. you so Thanks. much.
4: No, thank you so much. And uh, it, it's uh, hey everybody, drive carefully. I came in from the hill towns, and there were uh, there's flash flooding, and automatically slows down your car and forces it to steer in a direction you didn't intend, and Your windshield wipers aren't fast enough, so uh, everybody be smart on the roads. Meanwhile, thank you so much for joining us on Talk the Talk. As always, remember to walk the
0: walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Thank you. Looking to take a little breather from the news? We don't blame you. Why don't you turn the dial over to our Pure Oldie station? It's the music you grew up with. WHMP and the News will be right here when you get back. The Valley's Pure
13: Oldies, 96.9 and and
12: 100.5. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash newengland. A public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program.
0: WHMP Northampton and WRSI 2 Turners Falls, WHMP.com. on